saying, trust the process. It was made famous by a former Philadelphia 76ers general manager. He was trying to guide our team to a championship through a process called tanking. The idea was this, if you intentionally get bad, you can line yourself up to get some great draft picks and eventually win a championship. Well, apparently the Eagles are all about the process too. Quarterback Jalen Hurts with head coach of our team are trying to keep us focused and not become too confident. So one of the sayings that they're using amongst team members is the process is the process. The problem is, at least as far as the Sixers go, we definitely haven't won a championship. Some will wonder if the process will ever work. But maybe you're not into sports. Maybe you're an academic. Maybe you're a student in school or a musician. Maybe even your marriage or your life as a parent feels like a process. And it can take forever. And the outcome in all of these areas, whether it's sports or your studies or your relationships or your work, is by no means certain. That's why, if you look around you, a lot of your friends are dropping out, breaking up, and giving up. Your advisor might tell you to hold on to your investments. Trust the process, he might say, but what do you do when a bubble or the recession hits? Your karate instructor might tell you to keep grinding because you're gaining skills necessary to get that blue ribbon. But what happens when you tear your ACL and you have to drop out before the tournament? This is the problem in life. Nothing is guaranteed. But while all human processes are definitely uncertain, that's not true of God and his salvation. This process Peter calls salvation it's what is being worked out in our passage this morning, the process of salvation. But what makes this process unique, unlike any other, is that you can trust it because God is in it. Wherever you are in the process of your salvation, you can know today, and I want you to leave knowing today, that God is at work in your life. So let's begin by reading God's word and asking his blessing on the preaching and hearing and our application of the Holy Scriptures. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. In this, that is in this salvation process, you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Father, we are all in process with you. And some of us feel like that process has stalled 
or we might even be going backwards. And so it's tempting to give up, to lose hope. So I pray, Father, that as your scripture has been read and now it is about to be explained and applied to our lives, that we would hear from our Savior who has guaranteed the outcome and that we would be encouraged to press on in Jesus' name. Amen. Why can you trust this process? This process over all the other ones that I've mentioned, which you know as well as I do, are more than likely to fail. The reason that you can trust this process, first of all, is because though salvation is painful, it is purifying. You can trust God's salvation process because even though the salvation process is painful, it is purifying. Making progress in salvation, as I've experienced it, is often painful. Now, it's probably more painful for me than it is for you because I'm a tough case. But for all of us, in all of those parts of our lives, we think of them as spiritual bottlenecks or points of friction. These are pain points. If you get a new pair of shoes, what happens to your big toe or your heel? You get a blister. These points of friction in the salvation process are painful but it's purifying. This means that you will experience sorrow, heartache, and loss on the journey towards salvation. I'm sorry if someone didn't tell you that when you signed on the dotted line. Christianity is not a process without pain. But as you experience these things, what happens? Progressively, gradually, you become more and more like your Savior, Jesus Christ, and you become closer to that great salvation. Take a look at the text. Peter says in verse 6, in this, now the word this is referring back to the salvation that's described in 3, 4, and 5. In this salvation journey, <clears throat> in this process, you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Grief, sadness, tears, emotional anguish, <clears throat> mental distress, confusion, frustration, anger. This is the pain of life. However it may come, it might be physical. Maybe you're at a point in your life where you're dealing with a, a failing body. It might be mental. Maybe you're at a specifically challenging point in a marriage, in a, a work situation. It is rightly called grief. And since it is painful, you will be tempted, as I am, to forget that this Grief is part of the process in God's design. This is why Peter is telling you about it up front, the very beginning of the letter. But notice it's not just painful, it's also purifying. Look at verse 7. So that you've been grieved by various trials, verse 6, verse 7, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is testified or purified by fire, may be found to result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
So the purifying goal or end result of your salvation process is described with an analogy. It's almost like a mini parable here of gold or a precious metal going through purification. Now, this is right up my alley because I used to be a science teacher. But I had to review how to purify gold. It isn't something I did in the lab. Now, you may know this, but the purity of gold is measured in carats with a K, not the orange things. And the most pure gold is said to be 24 carats, 24 karat gold. Now, how do you get that? Getting pure gold isn't as easy as you think. According to Britannica, one way to do this is you melt gold in a furnace or in a crucible or in some oven. And at the melting point of gold, apparently if you combine it with different substances, for instance, gaseous chlorine, the impurities in the gold, such as copper or silver, will combine more easily with the chlorine they're more attracted to the chlorine than they are to the gold at that point. And so those impurities sort of scoot on over the chlorine and the pure gold is left, molten gold, pure gold. And then you scrape off the impurities and there you have it. The point is that the fire part is, is what's painful. Now the gold, of course, doesn't have nerve endings, it doesn't feel it, but we're being compared to gold actually Peter is saying that according to God, you're more, you're more precious than gold. And so he has you in the fiery furnace. And all the impurities of your life, the sin and the friction and the bottlenecks and your doubts and cares and concerns, through the, through the fiery trials that you're going through are scooting on over. And gradually, and it takes a while, it actually takes your whole life. Gradually, you are becoming pure. I want to illustrate this in connection with the work of the pastorate. Paul modeled this kind of painful but purifying activity in his ministry to the churches that he pastored and planted. And if you wonder if there were problems in the early church, wasn't it just a bunch of people all sitting around sharing everything, praising Jesus? Well, that's not the case because everything we know about the early church, we know because there was a letter written to them for some problems that they were dealing with. One, one church in particular got two or three letters from Paul. That's the church in the Greek city of Corinth. Now, I say two or three letters, there's only two in the New Testament, but scholars say there's probably a third letter that might have been between 1st and 2nd Corinthians, we're not sure, it isn't important. But Paul refers to this letter in 2nd Corinthians when he says, I'm sorry, or I feel bad, or I was tempted to regret having caused you grief by the letter that I sent to you. You see, God was using the pastor, the evangelist Paul, to introduce grief and trial in the lives of this church. And, and Paul was, was a man, and he, and he wasn't 
unmoved by their pain. But he said, but now I'm glad I did it. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Because I see the result in your life. Though you were grieved for a moment, what beautiful repentance it produced. And he says, all godly sorrow does that. Now I use this as an example, just as a reminder that it's hard being a pastor because I have to do hard things and say hard things at times. My, our, your elders join me in this work. But you have the same difficulty as parents, or if, if you're an adult child, relating to your adult parents is difficult. You have to say hard things to your, your grown parents. If you're a student and you have a, a, a TA who's supervising and you've got you've to say some hard things, or, or if you're a teacher, wherever you are in your job. But you know sometimes that doing the hard thing does bring about a good result. I also want to point out that there's two kinds of sorrow here. The grief that, that Peter is talking about, you've got a choice. It's like a fork in the road. You can choose to go, go down with your grief into depression and fatalism and hopelessness. and allow the inevitable realities of the fiery trial, the pain of your life, to take you far, far away from God. And make no mistake about it. That's where that's going to go. Or, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7, godly sorrow leads to repentance, refreshment, and renewal. This is a pervasive theme in the scriptures. God describes his people in the Old Testament as having a stiff neck and a hard heart. It's like a child being taken somewhere where the child doesn't want to go. They stiffen up. Sometimes they'll kick their legs. Try to put a jacket on a little toddler who doesn't want to go outside and you get an idea of what I'm talking about. A godly sorrow is arms up, Arms in, zip up, and out we go. That's godly sorrow. To get through the, my point is this, to get through the process, the painful process to purification, which is what you were made to do, sometimes repentance is called for on your part, especially when you discover that some of the pain and sorrow that you're experiencing isn't just because you're a great human being and others don't recognize that. You know, that's hard to believe. But your pain, sorrow, and suffering might be coming from your hard heart or foolish actions. Be open is what I'm encouraging you to do. At least ask the question, God, is my current trial, the fiery trial that I'm going through, is this purification, this painful purification, is it at least in part due to some sin on my part that you want to draw my attention to gently and lovingly and lead me to relinquish and experience the freedom that you promised me in Christ. So it's painful, but purifying. The second reason you can trust God's salvation process is that it's now and not forever. What I mean is that salvation has a specific time that it takes place. And we're told that it's, that it's in the future, and in order to get there, the current process 
The pain of the current process is temporary. Look at verse 6. I actually mentioned this last Sunday, ready to be revealed in the last time, meaning it hasn't fully been revealed yet, verse 5, so that verse 6, in this salvation process you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary. You see all those qualifiers? God is so good. Now, true, he says, for a little while, if necessary. God is not a masochist. He's not just sitting up on his holy throne in heaven, laughing at you, trying to figure it out. If necessary, if you've known someone or if you yourself have gone through cancer treatment, the goal is to kill the bad cells, not the good cells. And the reason that it's so scary is that it's kind of a, it's a race to the finish, neck and neck, where they just kill just a few more of the bad cells than the good cells, and hopefully you win and you survive. But it's cancer scary. God is very targeted, in other words, is what I'm saying, in his therapy for our sin and for our imperfections and our brokenness. He only doses out the chemo, the spiritual chemo that's necessary in your life. And unlike human doctors who sometimes are just winging it, it's like an experimental targeted therapy. Hopefully it can work, no guarantees. Again, that process that we can't trust from humans. With the Lord, he knows what he's doing. So it's happening now. You're not going to be refined in the future. Refinement, pain, sorrow, hardship is something that begins the very first moment that you believe. Now, I don't know if you remember when you first were a Christian. If, if, you're, if you're a believer, there's something, well, I'll just call it new believer syndrome. I mean, Jesus is great. Everything is great. All my entire family is going to believe. I'm filled with faith. I'm reading the word every day, all day long. Showing up to work late because I'm reading the Bible. Skipping dinner making my parents angry. You see, that beginning of the Christian faith, it might seem like there's not a trial to be had now. But that's because God loves you. He knows a little baby doesn't face the terrors of a hurricane on his or her first step. God is a good parent. He, he protects us. He fathers us so that the only trials you experience as a baby Christian are ones that you can handle. But then as you gain in strength and you experience setback, you learn wisdom and you understand that it's now, now for a little while, if necessary, he says, but it's not forever. I love that phrase, a little while. Though now for a little while, if necessary, he says, little while tells me that it isn't forever. God is not going to test or train or discipline you for no reason, and it's not going to go on forever. The good news here is that it isn't as long as you think. 
Now, I have children, they're grown now, and they don't do this anymore, but it used to be when we go, went on a trip longer than like five minutes, you know what I'm going to say, right? Papa, are we there yet? And one of our jokes in our family is it's 20 minutes. It's just always 20 minutes. No matter how, we could be traveling across the country, it's about 20 minutes away, because for a child, you can't think past five minutes. It may as well be 20 days for as all as 20 minutes, 20 days, it's the same thing. We're like that, I think, with the Lord. We're like in the back seat. If the Father or Christ is driving the car, Jesus, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? 20 minutes. It's just a little while. Trust me. We're going to get there. So can you trust God's salvation process? Yes. Reason number one, it's painful but purifying. Reason number two, it's now but not forever. The first or the third reason that you can trust God for your salvation is that it's first faith and later sight. Look at verse 8. You can trust God's salvation work in your life because verse 8 tells us it's first faith and then sight. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice. So there's two elements of faith here. You have not seen him. That's the first phrase in verse 8. And you do not now see him. Maybe you wonder why he repeated that in that way. It sounds kind of strange. You have not seen him and you don't see him. I think what Peter is saying is, not all of you have the same experience as I do. I, Peter, I saw the Lord. I, I embraced Him. I walked with Him. I ate with Him. I was at the Last Supper. But Peter is writing to the elect exiles of the dispersion. These are people who've only heard about Christ. They never got to meet Him. It reminds me a little bit of what Jesus says in John's Gospel. He says, Blessed are those who believe me without having seen. He says that to Doubting Thomas. Blessed are those who believe the word that the apostles write instead of the thing that the apostles saw. But then he says, you do not now see him, meaning we're, we're waiting to see him. We're in a waiting phase. We weren't there when Jesus was alive, and he's apparently not visible to us and present with us, at least in the physical body, at the moment. In other words, it's a season of faith. This is a season of faith. But this is glorious. It's glorious to be in a season of faith, isn't it? The text tells us that though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. You see, it's glorious to be walking by faith. I think sometimes as Christians, we're a little embarrassed of the fact, well, well you kind of got to believe. Peter says, you rejoice and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy by faith. Because I was a, a, a biology major, I'm, 
I'm, I was a science teacher. I struggled with this mightily. You know, sort of evidence. Uh, it's called empiricism, the philosophers. It's the five senses. Can you measure it? Can you taste it? Can you see it? And so, because we live in a scientific age, and that's actually not even accurate, it's more like a, it's like science is the dominant religion of society. Um, people who study these things call it the difference between science and scientism. Scientosis, we call it an inflammation of the science. See, as Christians, our faith is a reason for glory. But it's nothing compared to the glory of sight. First faith, then sight. You could trust God's salvation because faith is a real thing. It's, it's, it's a means by which you receive and experience the risen Christ in your day-to-day. Theologians call this your union with Christ. Here's what I mean. By faith, you and your destiny are so paired to the ascended Christ that everything that's true of him is guaranteed to be true of you. Victory over sin, full physical healing, and ultimately the presence of God and joy and blessing in the presence of God forevermore. Blessed are those who see pure in heart, for they will see God, is how Jesus put it. But that faith, as amazing as it is, is nothing compared to the glory of sight. Peter mentions seeing and the glory of seeing several times in our passage, because look at verse 7, the result of the purification process is glory. Your faith Tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now this means two things. You need to read this carefully. It will bring praise, glory, and honor to God when Jesus is revealed that you have finished the process. But Jesus himself will receive praise, glory, and honor when he is revealed. I think both are true. Either way, faith has become sight. Well, how is Jesus glorious? Why will Jesus get all this glory and honor when he is revealed? Because he shed his precious blood for you. And then he rose again from the dead on the third day for you. We saw a couple, days, a couple weeks ago that his resurrection has given you an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. That's glorious. You, you, and you're not alone. You're, you're part of a giant community of, of God-fearing, Jesus-loving followers from all the nations and all the languages down through all time. And you've taken your share in this inheritance. And that's why Jesus is going to be so praised and glorified. But for now, it's by faith. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, now we see in a mirror dimly. Do you know that saying? It's like you're 
wiping this fog or the steam off the mirror and you still can't quite see. But someday, he says, we'll see face to face. Won't that be wonderful? 1 John 3, 3, it does not yet appear what you shall be. The people I'm looking at are not the people I'm going to see in glory. Now, I'll hopefully see all of you in glory. I mean, you're going to change. Now, you'll be recognizable. The resurrected Lord was recognizable by his followers. He still had the scars in his body that he obtained in, this, in his suffering. There was something different about him. And so John says, it doesn't yet appear what you shall be. You have no idea what God has in store for you. The glorious revelation of the sons of God. John says, we will see him because we will be like him. Still uniquely you, individual persons, but so transformed that it's going to be blatantly obvious, painfully obvious to the, to the eyes that you are now completely and fully transformed into the likeness of Christ. Amazing. But these are two things that happen at the same time. Even though you have many trials in your life, and it's painful, you're called to walk by faith and rejoice. So the two things that happen at the same time are the hope, the faith, and the rejoicing, which is prominent in our passage. Verse 6, in this you rejoice. Verse 8, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. And even verse 3, which begins the whole section, says praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus. So rejoicing and faith happen at the same time as you're suffering and experiencing sorrow and grief. In order to move ahead in your life, you need to learn that balance or that practice. How do I receive and accept the hardships of my life and rejoice and walk by faith? You know, they say multitasking doesn't work. You're really just pausing between two activities. Why well, multitasking? No, you're you're linear, just switching very fast. We need to find a way to do two things at the same time. Accept our difficult circumstances and rejoice with exceeding joy. I began this morning by illustrating how hard it is to believe people when they say trust the process, we, we know. I mean, I mentioned cancer and physicians. The, the, the best doctors in the world are just guessing. With the grief we go through, sorrow of heart, anguish of soul, afflictions, physical or otherwise, on our journey to heaven, it can seem terrifying. And some of you are tempted to give up. But I think these things can be related. 
the disappointments you have in the different processes, whether it's doctors or your marriage or your job or sports, just the continual disappointments you get from human processes. I think in God's goodness and kindness to us are a reminder that there's only one thing you can trust. And that's the process of your salvation. And so in God's goodness, he doesn't let you fall in love with these other things. And at times, he will permit or allow you to stumble and to suffer and to come in second or last. Or even have to drop out of the tournament. That doesn't mean Christians can't win, and if you do, give all glory to God. I'm, I'm cheering for you to come in first place in whatever it is you're pursuing. Now, God did something like that in my life when I was a teenager, actually. Through many difficulties, I felt my life going down and down and down. I definitely was not thinking about God. In fact, I, if I'm honest, I was probably angry with God. Do you know what I mean? But I was trying to solve my problems with any solution I could find besides God. And then just to sort of, you know, I guess, prove myself, I would occasionally open the Bible and say, see, there's no answer here, and I'd close it quickly. But one time I opened my Bible. I wouldn't recommend this procedure but I open the Bible to this verse. And I've never been the same. That day, in this text, God showed me I could trust him. Now, it hasn't been an easy journey. But I've seen God time and again with my doubts and questions with my missteps and failures, and with the disappointments I've received at the hands of other people, again and again and again, God has proven to me that I can trust him, and so can you. That's why this is my life verse. You know, as a pastor, you might say, Pastor, how did you pick First Peter? Well, I've been waiting a while to preach this sermon. I became a Christian, professed my faith, as an adult, I should say, at age 18. It was a couple years ago. <laughs> Even though you can't see him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. I'm still in process with God today. Some of you know that very well. I'm standing alive, which is proof positive that God is not finished with me. I'm breathing, my heart is beating, he's still at work in my life, and so he is at work in yours. Even if you haven't taken the first step in the journey yet, you're here hearing this message as an invitation to begin with God today. He's working on me, and he's refining me like gold. Now, I wish I could have the experience of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You know the story where those three boys were thrown into the fiery furnace 
and the king, the pagan king, looked in and he saw four figures. You guys all right in there? Oh yeah, we're fine. And they, did, they came out, the, the text in Daniel says, they didn't even smell like smoke. I wish I could kind of go through life's trials like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I don't even smell smoke on him. Just cruising on through from glory to glory. <laughs> That's not me. I get burned to a crisp over and over again. It's like God says, this guy needs some extra cooking. In the famous book of Ecclesiastes, the author, whom we know as the preacher, says this over and over again in the book, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. In other words, every human project or process is doomed to fail. And even the ones that succeed, the preacher says, you don't get credit for it. That's inspiring, isn't it? But Ecclesiastes, I think, it's an unnecessarily bad rap because it isn't entirely hopeless. After 11 and a half chapters of this stuff, this is how he ends. The end of the matter is this. Fear God and keep his commandments. What the preacher is saying is the only process you can trust is one where God is in the driver's seat, where God is in charge, where you're looking to the Lord and being guided by his word. The broad path that everyone else takes may seem fine for a moment, but it ends badly. But fearing God and keeping his commandments through Jesus Christ has a guaranteed outcome. Since that's the case, no matter how hard it is, following him is the best way to live. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this salvation journey, this salvation process. And I'm praying that you will have gotten our attention this morning, wherever we are in that process. It's my desire, Lord, personally speaking, that you would not abandon me, that you would keep doing your Holy Spirit work in me, You'd be faithful to complete it, Lord, lovingly. Be patient, Lord, with me. Be tender. Be targeted in these trials because I am very weak, and I pray the same for my brothers and sisters as well. They may have different needs. They may have different questions, uh, different strengths, certainly. And as a body of Christ, Lord, as a congregation, we pray that you would also continue to help us as a Christian family journey together so that we can rejoice someday very soon. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, please visit our website at www.mercyhillnj.org. We meet every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Church House located at 300 University Boulevard in Glassboro, off of Harvard Avenue, adjacent to the J. Harvey Rogers School and near Rowan University. We'd love for you to join us. Please see our website for directions. Thank you again for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast.